Hi, good morning, church. My name is Danielle, and I am a covenant partner here. This week, we are continuing our study of the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. Once again, the Apostle Paul offers encouragement for the people of God by reminding them that our relationship with Jesus Christ is more powerful and valuable than any threat or distraction that we might encounter. Our passage for today is Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Jesus Christ, put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Thank you, Danielle. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. My name is Bob Fuller. I'm the senior pastor here at First Presbyterian Church of San Antonio, and it is so good to have everybody here. It's so great to have you worshiping with us online this morning, and whether you're here or you're online, I think it's a great day to be thankful. I want to thank uh, Maggie for, for leading us in just that moment of gratitude at the very beginning of the service. Let me ask you this. How many of you all, when you were, when you were giving thanks, when you were thinking of that, that point of gratitude, how many of you thought of a, of a thing... And how many of you thought of a person? How many of you thought of a thing versus how many of you thought of a person or people? You know, instead of stuff, maybe you thought of relationship. I know that when I am most thankful, when I'm most grateful, my thoughts, my gratitude focus on people, on, on relationships that I have. And, and so today I want to, I just want to thank, I just want to share with you all something very special about this weekend, something very special going on in my life. As of this past Friday, I have been married to my wife, Morgan Warner Fuller, for 27 years. For, now, that, that is certainly a profiling courage for her. Um, I just, I, I want to say too, you know, in addition to that, we, we, we dated for three years for that, and so We've been together for 30 years, which was awesome until Alex told me that that's how long he's been alive. Um, but I, but it, it's a thrilling thing. And I can tell you that, you know, my life has not been the same for 30 years. 
my life was changed back then and i can tell you categorically unequivocally that when i met morgan fuller 30 years ago without a doubt it was the best day of her life i mean i mean i can tell you it's never been easy to live with me <laughs> She has seen me at my best. She's seen me at my worst. But I've got to tell you, over the last six months of this COVID and quarantine, she has become the very dictionary definition, definition the very picture of extraordinary grace under unusual circumstances. Her long-suffering patience, her endurance, and her affection have been incredible. And I, and I want to say this, not only about her, but to her this morning. Her graces, her, her love have made this last seven months not only bearable, it's made them a blessing. I don't know how many of you all feel, but I feel like even though this has been a very difficult season, our relationship has grown in ways that, that I could have never expected, and I am so grateful for that. And I just want to tell you, Morgan, I would quarantine with you anytime. So, now... I'm not just telling you this to tell you a little bit about my personal life or to score points with my wife. Today, I want to use that description of relationship, or, or I want you to think about the most important, significant, and healthy relationships in your life, and I want to use that image, I want to use that relationship as a way to help you understand another relationship. Today, I want to use that relationship of marriage or that best relationship in your life to understand our relationship with Christ. Now, over the last couple of months, we've been studying the book of Philippians under the series title, Underdog Faith. Now, what is underdog faith? Underdog faith is that faith that no one expects from people that no one expects in circumstances that no one expects. An underdog takes those unexpected, usually daunting circumstances and turns them upside down. An underdog has unexpected joy in the face of suffering, unexpected courage in the face of persecution, unexpected kindness in the face of great cruelty, unexpected patience in the face of great urgency, unexpected tenacity in the face of great and overwhelming odds, unexpected generosity in the face of great poverty, and unexpected hope in the face of great tragedy. Now, how can underdogs endure so much and yet remain so full of hope and so full of joy? It's because they've discovered that there is something bigger than the threats of this world, and there is something better than the promises and distractions of this world, and that's what keeps them going. Now, what can possibly be bigger than the threats of this world and better than the promises and distractions of this world? Well, Paul identifies it as this. Paul says that what is better, bigger than the threats of this world and better than the promises of this world is our relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul says that it is the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ and being found in him that is better than everything else. And underdog believers understand that Christianity is not just another religious system of rules and rituals, punishments and rewards. Christianity is a relationship with a living 
personal Savior. In chapter 3 of Philippians, as Paul makes an effort to encourage these underdog Christians, Paul gives us a very brief insight into his own life and journey. And his own personal relationship with Christ is, is put on display. But he begins his passage, this passage with these words. He says, let's rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Now that seems like a strange place to begin, especially given the fact that he was writing this letter from prison. He was awaiting his own execution. He was under custody of the Romans. Things were not looking good for him in any worldly standard. And yet, with all that Paul had suffered in that moment and over his career, he is telling the people, rejoice, because he wants to set the tone for everything else. No matter what has happened to me in my life, I am going to rejoice. And then the apostle turns and gives them a warning. And this deserves a little bit of unpacking he says look out for the dogs look out for the evildoers look out for those who mutilate the flesh now this is a string of fierce depictions of the people who are persecuting and slandering the early followers of jesus he says beware of people who constantly harass you and call you unclean and bite at you and bark at you like dogs for your faith in christ he says, beware of the people who stone you and imprison you, who react to your love and truth in Jesus Christ with violence and lies and conspiracy. He says, beware of the people who demand that you will never be good enough, that God will never love you unless you're just like them and, and you dress like they dress and talk like they talk and do what they do and play by their rules. Paul says, you need to watch out for these people. And how do I know? Because I was one of them. I know you need to watch out for these people because I was one of them. Paul was never shy about sharing his own story, his story about his conversion, about his past, and about his unexpected path to Christ. He tells that story a number of times in the book of Acts, but here in this letter to the Philippians, Paul's words are not only a testimonial, they are a confession. Paul tells us, and he tells his readers, this is who I was. If you want to know about those people, look at my past. Because for most of his life, Paul bet everything he had on his record. And that record was built on four pillars. The first pillar was his pedigree. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul is saying, I was born in the right family. I am in the right tribe. I am, I am one of God's chosen people. You can't touch me. I have been born in the right place. Don't ask Paul if he was born again. He'd say, I was born right the first time. And he was putting all of his eggs in that basket. I am in the right family and the right tribe. Not only that, in addition to his ethnic identity and his family identity, he also had his position. As to the law, a Pharisee. He was in the right party. The Pharisees were both well-respected and influential. And his identity as a Pharisee gave him position and status in the community. The third pillar was his power. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. You see, Paul liked his reputation as a bulldog, as relentless, as a zealot, 
as a hard worker, as a tireless go-getter. But more than that, I think that Paul liked being feared. And he was all too happy to exploit the power that his position afforded. He liked his reputation for ruthlessness. And like a bully, he liked having the leverage to intimidate people. And then fourth, he loved draping all of that in an aura of purity and piety. You know, I'm, I'm safe and I'm satisfied because I'm so religious to the righteous to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. If you told Paul, nobody's perfect, he might say, check again. I am pretty good. The problem, however, was not that Paul was pure or pious, that he was well-behaved or that he had a spotless record. It was that he was self-righteous. Paul took vain pride in his purity, in his piety. That's how Paul saw himself. In many ways, the pre-conversion Paul was much like the character of Javert in Victor Hugo's famous novel, Les Miserables. Javert was an investigator who cared more about the letter of the law than the people and the community the law was designed to protect. Ruthless, relentless, self-righteous. He never lied, but that didn't make him an honest person. He never stole, he never cheated, but that didn't make him virtuous because he had no mercy. He was angry at the world, and so he enforced the law with pitiless cruelty. And that's what happened to Paul. Paul fell victim to the seduction of a counterfeit gospel and his own press his own self-righteousness he believed that eternal life and true joy were based on his own record and he was betting his life on his family name on his titles on his power and his own piety but then on the road to damascus saul of tarsus met the living christ and his life would never be the same he was utterly overpowered and in the face of true authority and true glory paul saw that his power and his titles were as worthless as filthy rags whatever gain i had i counted as loss for the sake of christ indeed i count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing christ jesus my lord up to that point paul bet his whole life on his record but then he discovered that a relationship with christ is so much better for his sake i have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish the word here can also be translated as manure in order that i may gain christ and be found in him listen to those words that i may know him that i may be found in him paul is describing a relationship you see up to this point paul had plenty of religion in his life but he didn't have a relationship with the living lord i mean he was he was totally devoted to the program but then he discovered the person. And after he met Jesus Christ, he knew that everything that he thought was important 
His record, his resume, his piety, his pedigree was nothing compared to an active relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ. And the point of this passage is that a relationship with Jesus Christ is better than all of those other pillars that we use to prop up our lives. I mean, first of all, a relationship with God and Jesus Christ is not based on my worthiness, on my record of good and bad, success and failure, or honor or shame. It starts with God's promise, his unmerited promise of his grace. In other words, he doesn't love me because I deserve to be loved. The Father promises to love me because of what Jesus did. We're loved not because of our record of righteousness, but because of Christ's record of righteousness. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Our relationship with God is not based on what we have to do to prove our worth to God. It is about what He has done to prove His love for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. So first, it's based on His grace. Second, my relationship with God is based on trust in His grace and faithfulness. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see, it's not just that God loves me, but based on what Christ did for me, it's that I trust him, and I am willing to bet my life not on me, not on, and bet my eternity not on me, but bet my life and eternity on him and what Jesus Christ did. You know, I'm going to bet my life on him because I know that the Father cares about me. He's proven that he loves me. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I'm going to trust him with my life because he's proven not only that he loves me, but that by the power of the resurrection, by raising Jesus Christ from the dead, he has proven that this God is a God who keeps his promises and he has the power to take care of us, not just until death, but beyond death and into eternity. Even if we die, God can still take care of us. He can make a difference in our lives now and forever. And he has proven it by the resurrection of his son. And then third, by his grace, by his love and his power, he has promised that, he, that we will share in his life and his experiences in every way from suffering to victory. Paul writes this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, God became man and got down in the mud and the blood and the uh, mess and the stress to prove not only that he loves us, to but to prove to us that he understands us, that he gets us, that he, that he would not put us through things that he was not willing to endure himself. He understands our lives. He understands our joys and our pains, our, limit, our limitations and our possibilities. He says, I am in this with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He shared our lives, and now he is inviting us to share his life. Just as, as he shared our whole lives with us, we will share his life with him. Now, why does that have to include suffering? Because there is so much that we learn through suffering. Primarily, when we enter into the suffering of Christ, we Share the vulnerable, life-giving, powerful, graceful love of God 
that Jesus himself displayed. I am fully convinced that you can't really say that you love someone until you're willing to suffer for them and with them. Until you're willing to kind of put your heart out there, your life out there, your time out there, and say, I'm willing to give that up for you. I mean, all of us who are parents know that none of us really knew what love was until we had kids. If you're married, you didn't know what love really was until you got married. Until, until our love is big enough to suffer for somebody else, we don't really know who Christ is. But it's not just his suffering. He also wants us to share in the experience of his life, of his victory. We'll come back to that more in just a moment. But God became one of us. Jesus was in it for us. Not just in the hard things, but in everything. So Paul's encounter with Jesus Christ changed his world forever. And he considered his relationship with Jesus Christ the single most impact, important factor of his life. Now I began this morning talking about this passage in the context of my own marriage. And today I want to use that relationship to help us understand this relationship with Christ. I'm not claiming that my marriage is perfect like, like God's love for us is perfect. But if we look at the book of Ephesians, we see that Paul has given us marriage as a human, visible example of a way to understand his love for us, for the church. Paul says in chapter 5, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now we have all seen marriages in all kinds of relationships at their best. And we've all seen marriages and relationships at their worst. I'm going to ask you to think about marriage at its best, not at its worst right now. Think about those relationships at their best, not at their worst. Because according to Paul, healthy marriage is a visible reminder of a spiritual reality. When a marriage is healthy, when a marriage is godly and fruitful, it gives us a glimpse of the spiritual reality of Christ's love for the church and for us, and, for, and it gives us a picture of this life-changing relationship. Now, here's the great thing. You don't have to be married to benefit from this. If you know great marriages, if you know healthy marriages, then that can become an example of Christ's love for the church for you. But let's look at this. How does the relationship of marriage teach us about our relationship with Christ? Well, it starts with a covenant promise of grace. It is received by trusting in faith, and it grows through the shared experience of suffering and victory. First of all, marriage starts out with a promise of grace. You know, we began our marriage, Morgan and I began our marriage by making vows, by making covenant promises to one another. And you know what? We made those knowing very well to whom we were saying them. Because the truth is, when I stepped in front of that pastor, I was no perfect person. As a matter of fact, Morgan at that point knew me better than anybody on earth, and I'm amazed that she got up in front of that pastor with me. But that's grace. No one was that, is without failure or guilt either going in or in a marriage. I mean, try as hard as we might. We all make mistakes. And we all occasionally disappoint or hurt one another. But the co covenant promises of marriage create an environment in which we forgive each other. 
Our covenant promises say to one another that we make room for imperfection. Your spouse sees you at your best. Your spouse sees you at your worst. And because of these covenant promises of grace that we hold for one another, we love each other anyway. Isn't that better than anything else? Not that my wife would give me what I deserve, but rather that she would give me love and grace in spite of what I deserve. Now, because of that grace, it's also a relationship of trust. A healthy relationship is not based on performance. It's based on the faith that we will keep, that we will keep, that we will keep our covenant promises. Morgan made a promise to me, a covenant. And I believe that Morgan is going to keep her promises. I know that Morgan is going to love me and that she's not going to abandon me or give up on me even when I fall and even when I fail. And she knows that she can trust me to be faithful, to look out for her interests, to look out for her needs, to champion her best life and her best joy and her happiness. She knows that she can count on me to stick with her through the best of times and the worst of times. And I know that's true of her because it's a relationship of trust. And because we made a commitment to each other for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, for as long as we both shall live, we know that we are going to have a relationship of shared suffering and shared victories. We are in this together. We did not get married from a distance. We do not stay at a distance. We are in the mud and blood and mess and stress of life together every day. We share both challenges and joys, and whatever life throws at us, good or bad, tragic or triumphant, we are going to experience those things together. And we've been through some very difficult and scary challenges. But you know what? That suffering has deepened our relationship and sharpened our devotion, not only to one another, but to the Lord. Suffice it to say, we've grown through the challenges and I would not change a moment because I've been able to experience the joys and the challenges with her as well. Those things that I have not, those, those things that have not broken us have made us stronger. And we are willing to endure suffering together. To be married means, is to know that you are going to have some Good Friday crucifixion moments and you're going to have some Easter Sunday moments. And to know that you are going to stick together and learn and grow and love through both. And our relationship has grown through both Good Friday crucifixion moments and Easter Sunday resurrection moments. Both hardships and victories. And any time we thought that we couldn't take it anymore or a particular challenge was too great to bear, God showed up and gave us resurrection power in ways that we would never expect. So it's not just what I get from my marriage. It's not just that Morgan does certain things for me or gives me certain things or fills a role in my life. The truth of marriage, the reason it's better than everything else is that because being married to Morgan, being married to my wife, makes everything else better. C.S. Lewis once said that the gospel is like the sun. It's not only that I see it, but by it I see everything else. 
And when you have that kind of relationship built on grace, built on trust, built on shared experiences, it makes everything else better. No, I don't expect her to fix all my problems. But because of her, I can deal with everything else I have to deal with. I'm never alone, and I know that she's always got my back, and she knows me better than I know myself, and she cares for my health more than I do, and my well-being more than I do. Now, I realize that not all marriages are like my marriage. I know that all marriages, uh, that, that all marriages have brokenness because they're always made up of broken people. But good marriages remind us of God's love for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And Paul's point in Ephesians is that relationships of grace and trust and shared experience bring more to our lives than we can calculate. A business author and Stanford professor Jim Collins says that the only way to prepare for the unthinkable or for the unimaginable is to surround yourself with the right people. Having the right people on your team is the only way that you can be prepared for the unexpected. Paul was right when he was saying my position, my job, my achievements, my citizenship, even my other relationships are worthless compared to that one primary relationship with Jesus Christ. Because no one loves me more than Christ. He's the one who loves me no matter what. No one is more trustworthy than Christ. Because I know that our God is the God who keeps his promises. He proved it through his death and his resurrection. And no one I've ever experienced and no one I know has experienced more with me than Christ Jesus has. He is the God who is going to be there through your sufferings and in your victory. We know that the promise of Jesus Christ is not an empty promise because we are going to experience not only his sufferings, but also his resurrection as well. And so a relationship with God through Jesus Christ is not just a necessity for eternal life. It's a blessing beyond our comprehension. And how can underdogs endure so much and yet remain so full of hope and joy? It's because they've discovered that there is just something bigger than the threats of this world and better than the promises and distractions of this world that keeps them going. And what is that? Paul wrote, not that I have already obtained this or I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Again, it's about the relationship. It's not about the pillars that prop up my life. It's about the relationship that makes everything better. That is the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ and being found in him. A relationship with him is bigger than everything that threatens us and better than anything and everything that distracts or tempts us. Let me ask you this. Are you propping up your life with pillars? Pillars of achievement, pillars of approval, pillars of position or pedigree or family or association, whatever it may be. Or are you trusting that there is just nothing better than knowing Christ and being found in Him? I promise you, that is of surpassing worth. He's already made his covenant promise to you through his son, Jesus Christ. Now I'm just asking you to trust him and bet your life on him because he is trustworthy. 
He is faithful. He loves you and he has the power to make a difference in your life. He's already sharing your experiences and he wants to let you share his. Not only the sufferings that we endure, but the victories that he promises. Know that the relationship with Jesus Christ is of surpassing worth. And he wants to share that relationship with you. You pray with me? Heavenly Father, I know that throughout my life I have tried to prop up my, my existence in so many ways. The right position, with the right name recognition, with the right skills or degrees or job titles, whatever it is try to get into relationships that would benefit me or, or that carried certain gravitas, but Lord, all those things are simply rubbish compared to knowing you and being found in you. Lord, I'm not worthy of anything based on my own record, and yet you looked at me, you have offered me your grace, covenant promises. You have offered us proof that you are trustworthy and you have proven that you will walk with us that you will never leave us nor forsake us and you invite us into the depth and truth of your life so Lord I just ask now that anybody in this room who does not yet know that you want that relationship with them would just would let go of those pillars just allow you to knock them down, that they would confess them and say, I don't need those things. I need Jesus Christ because he is of surpassing worth. Lord, help us to trust you and to know that you are better than anything that tempts us and bigger than anything that threatens us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.